This is an ABC podcast. The SMS arrived early on the morning of New Year's Eve. We got an alert at 6am and everyone in the region got this alert. Bushfire warning, Mogo, leave now and east towards the beach, shelter in place. Which you think would be enough to get you out of bed, right? But I didn't really (laughs) acknowledge that text really well. For me, seeing Mogo, I was like, I'm not Mogo, I'm fine. (laughs) You see, Mogo, the town on the New South Wales south coast, is about a 15-minute drive inland from Lilypilly, where Will Hook lives. The bushfire wasn't anywhere near him. And anyway, it was way too early. This wasn't how Will imagined his morning playing out. I just want to enjoy my holidays. I want to have my morning coffee. I want to go to the beach. I'm really shitty about this. I just don't want to do this. And so Will rolled over and... (laughs) I kind of just snoozed it and went back to sleep. And I was like, stuff it. Will slept for about an hour until, once again, he was woken up. But this time by a different sound. And I could hear my flatmate hosing down the house. And I was like, what is going on? So I came out and he was like, we need to leave. And everyone had been sending texts to us saying, guys, the fire's breached, it's close to you, you need to evacuate. But I've been ignoring them. (laughs) Now I've learnt if you get the message that ends in triple four, it means you have to leave. Hey, I'm Joel Werner. This is Some of All Parts. And today, it's how we evacuate. Will Hook is a clinical nurse who specialises in sexual health. So we're in Lilypilly, and Lilypilly is just on the edge of Batemans Bay. It's still part of the same postcode, but it's about a 15-minute drive to our walk. Because Sydney people think, oh, 15-minute drive. You think, no, not like a Sydney 15-minute drive. Up until a couple of years ago, Will was one of those Sydney people. But then a work opportunity brought him to the New South Wales south coast. This job had come up, there's a beach close by, so I was like, yeah, this is sweet. The sea change treated him well. When people ask me about moving to regional areas, that's the biggest thing I say. Like, it was pure luck when I arrived, there was a group of people around a similar age to me, and we all kind of had a little potluck group. We have dinner at each other's houses, we've been able to go away for weekends together and stuff, so because of that, it made it much easier to transition, because like anywhere you move to, if you don't make a good friendship network, it can be really isolating. And it's not just friends. For the same as what he was paying to rent a studio apartment in Sydney, Will can live in a modern open-plan house down here. I'm pretty lucky with the house. The windows that just surround beautiful trees and sun. I was happy, but I was very conscious when I first moved here about the bushfire risk as well, because I thought, well, shit, if I'm surrounded by so much greenery, there is always going to be that risk. Soon after making the move, Will put together a simple bushfire plan. It pretty much involved grabbing his passport, some photos, and getting out. It was the kind of thing he did and then almost immediately forgot about. I'd been here for two years and nothing had come, so it never really bothered me. But when we had the fires break out in November, quite north to us, we all started thinking this could actually get close to us, so we started preparing a little bit more. And We were semi-prepared, but we honestly didn't think it would come this close, like most people, because we're quite suburban in a sense. Will was caught between recognising the bushfire threat and being blasé about it. His house backs onto bushland, sure, but at the same time, this neighbourhood is really suburban. There's rows and rows of houses on streets with curbed guttering and wheelie bins. It's hard to imagine a firefront tearing through a place like this. On top of that, by New Year's Eve, these bushfires had been burning for quite a while. 
Like a lot of people on the south coast, Will was fatigued from being on bushfire alert for weeks, months on end. But then some days, the warnings come louder and you just know it's going to be bad. And by December 30, everyone knew that New Year's Eve was going to hit hard. There had been discussions that this was going to be a catastrophic day. So we were just going to play it by ear because at this point, looking at the fire app, it was really far away. We were a bit blase. And so we went to bed and I was a little bit, I remember waking up a few times in the middle of the night, panicking, thinking there was a fire in the backyard, but it was just my dreams. And sure, the fire wasn't in Will's backyard that night, but it also wasn't just in his dreams. It was amazing on that particular night because we saw fire spread from around about one or two in the morning that we would typically see in the worst parts of the heat of the day. Inspector Ben Shepherd is with the New South Wales Rural Fire Service. He remembers that night. It did get to the point here where we saw numerous running fires into numerous communities. And again, we don't want to have that warning fatigue where people are just getting text message after text message. We had to do a broad area and basically really say between Maruya up to Batemans Bay, you know, if it is safe, move towards the beach. Otherwise, seek shelter as the fire approaches because we can't give any other clear guidance during that time. And the last thing we want is people on the road or even worse, people out on foot trying to outrun something because we know traditionally that's where the deaths do occur. It was a text message from the RFS that Will received and then subsequently ignored for an hour on the morning of New Year's Eve. But once he was up, it quickly dawned on him that this was really happening and he needed to act. I grabbed my passports, my photos, chucked them in the car. I had a camping box I used when I go camping, like with all my stovetops, I thought I'll, I'll grab that. And then we went in the backyard and we could feel this intense heat. The only way I can describe it is it's already 40 degrees and it's 8.30 a.m. and you feel this like intensity of a campfire heat just standing in front of a fire and then you see this orange glow and this fresh smoke, not like this smoke that had been hovering and you think this isn't right, we've got to go and then it kind of gets more eerie as you get to the front of the street and you see everyone's cars packed and you think everyone's going, this is happening. And then the RFS had come up at this point and started yelling out to people and saying you need to leave now, you need to leave now. So it was kind of this surreal moment where you thought it was going to be the fire was far away and we just thought we'd get covered to being like, this could hit any second now, we need to go. There are a number of categories of bushfire threat. Initially, a fire is categorised as advice level. This is when the fire service provides information about the fire to the local communities. But as soon as that fire starts to move towards homes its status is elevated to what's called watch and act. Now, for many people, that is their chance to enact their survival plan. And for some, that might be now, you know what, I'm now going to leave this area or I'm going to make final preparations for that fire to, to actually impact on my home. But that is normally most of the population's chance to actually leave an area. When the fire starts to actually hit people's homes, its status is lifted to emergency warning. So for many times across this season, it has escalated and escalated so quickly that we've actually had to tell people, it is now too late to leave, you need to shelter in place. Or a couple of times we have to said, if your plan is to leave, then leave now towards, and we have to give them specific information about the direction of travel. Because if we can't guarantee that that path is clear, then it's very hard for us to provide that information. And this is why we're asking people to try and make those decisions at the watch and act, not necessarily at that emergency warning level. 
but it differs for so many people. And talking to people around the Mogo area even this past fire season, they got the text message. They looked at the smoke. They still thought it might pass us. They didn't believe us. They thought they knew better and the fire impacted them. You know, this is what we've all talked about in our debriefs and you think about your fight or flight response and how people cope. And I went through a few different stages, I think. That morning was this, you know, resentment for leaving and then suddenly this spring into action, it has to be done now, what do I grab? But then it all changed once I got in the car and started driving and seeing how close it was coming. And I think a reality kind of hit that I may lose my house right now. And, you know, there is actually a potential for danger. So surprisingly, once I left the house, all of a sudden this fight turned into more of a flight, if that makes sense. Because in your mind, you're thinking, is that my house I'm breathing in right now? You know, is this other people's houses? And then this is when I started getting really upset because I had no reception and no power that like everyone, no one knew where anyone was. We didn't know our friends were okay. And I thought, <laughs> ask anyone with a mum or a son or anyone in the district, you just want to tell your mum you're alive. And then that's what was making me so upset. I just wanted to be able to tell people I'm okay. In this sort of crisis, communication is key. And that's true for both the public and the emergency services. When a fire is at emergency warning, the fire service can send out what's known as an emergency alert. This alert can be either a push notification via the Fires Near Me app, an automated voice message to a landline phone, or an SMS to a mobile phone, like the one we'll received on New Year's Eve. Now, two things, though, when we pick mobiles. We can actually send it to billing address or we can send it to people within that location. It's not often that we would send it just to billing address, but sometimes if we're really trying to be quite targeted on a particular street, we may. But take, for instance, the South Coast this year. We know that there are tens of thousands of holidaymakers there that don't have a build mobile in that area. So therefore, we quite often pick people in the area of that mobile tower and we then can construct a message. The hardest thing is, currently with that system, we can only have 165 characters. And the first bit has to be NSWRFS emergency bushfire warning. So therefore, a lot of that message is taken up just in that first bit. But then it will be people of MOGO seek shelter as the fire approaches or people of the Mogo and surrounds seek shelter as the fire approaches. Now the problem is if we pick an area or the shape of that area in the system, it will detect what towers cover into that area. Sometimes though those towers have a wide spread, so it's not unusual to get wash over into areas that aren't necessarily at threat, but people are therefore getting that information. As committed as the emergency services are to getting people timely, accurate bushfire information, when the scale and intensity of the crisis is as unprecedented as it has been this summer, people can't always rely on being told what to do. People need to understand that we do as much as we can, but when you've got fires that are spreading basically on the worst of days, from Bega almost to Byron Bay, and you've got the risk to communities across there, the information that we're trying to share and spread as quickly as possible sometimes won't come to certain individuals as quick as they may want it. So the main thing is in all our communication, our public information, is we say, you know, you should never wait for a text message. You shouldn't necessarily expect a fire truck and don't expect a knock on the door. And Again, this season, so many people that I've spoken to, they could see the fire. It looked like a volcano erupting over them. And they still thought, well, I haven't got my message yet. It may not be coming. So we got to Malua Bay. 
which is just down the road from us, about a two-minute drive, and they had an evacuation centre there, a, a mini one, which the Surf Life Saving Volunteers had been running, and it was packed. So it's quite surreal at first, because you knew there'd be some people, but it was packed. Because the roads had started shutting down, people just driving through suddenly got cut off, and they had to just resort to go in there. So my friend Shalina at work had horses, so she had all these horses on the beach. So you just think, this is insane, like an apocalypse, because there was that orange tinge, and then we had so many dogs and cats going wild and kids screaming, and, and then these horses running around on the beach, and people just not knowing what to do because it wasn't the main evacuation center where you had marshals and things like that. It was just a place to sit and be safe. And we were okay for probably half an hour, an hour of trying to play cards. And then we suddenly saw black smoke really close and we realized it was a fire. That was the realization we saw how quickly it was moving. We thought, holy shit, it's, it's here and it's in our backyard. And everyone had to evacuate from the grounds and all go to the beach. <laughs> and then as we got to the beach, we just sat there. A spot fire started right next to the evacuation centre in the trees. So they had to push people further down and then so the beach got insanely packed. And we had some smoke billowing and then we started hearing the popping, which was the LPG gases going from the bowling club, because they have those big ones. And you could hear the trees falling and all that stuff as it kind of got closer and closer. And you could kind of feel this eerie anxiety in the air. So no one was screaming or crying, but just this dead silent, like like these mums trying to breastfeed their babies and everything because they're just trying to get them away from the smoke and you think I just hate to be here with a baby that's all I was thinking these people are trying so hard and to control everything and then it just fell into darkness because the smoke was so thick as we sat there you're sitting looking at the ocean you've got a fire to your left and then a fire broke out to the right that's how quickly these embers were just falling all over so it wasn't following a pattern it just suddenly just fires would just start all over the place because it was shrouded in darkness and this debris we just had to hide under a blanket because you're just breathing in and your eyes were sore and you just and it was just this constant moment and this is what I reflected on with my flatmate the next day that like did we actually go through that that was insane so it wasn't too bad on the beach until we were all forced onto the beach because when the bowling club went up it created that big plume of darkness and I had laid on my blanket at that point and put my blanket over the top of me because it was so the smoke was getting to me and you know I was a bit teary I think so I wanted to kind of hide away because I just felt helpless and you could tell people was so you know when the adrenaline kicks in and people don't know what to do with that energy so people are standing sitting standing sitting moving in the middle of the anxious debris choked chaos small moments small life moments make all the difference there were these people who just sat next to us and their dog just came up to me and it just like, there was something so lovely about it. I just kind of gave it a hug and it was some random dog. You're like, oh, I need this dog right now. <laughs> it's so perfect. Will and his flatmate had arrived at the beach just before nine that morning. The fire reached them about an hour later and the sky blacked out just before midday. The whole beach evacuation had taken place over a four to five hour period. But by mid-afternoon, the situation had started to improve and the two of them headed to the car to take shelter because there was still smoke and heat and wind and embers. As the intensity of the situation eased, they decided that now was the time to act. You want to know if your house is there constantly because you just have no other way of knowing. So you think if the roads are open, maybe it's safe to go and see our house. And it wasn't until we got to the top of the hill just as we enter our street, we could see the fires still raging. 
normally you'd see a fire on the side of the road and you think, holy shit, call the fireies. But it, because it'd been going for so long, there were spot fires everywhere. You'd be like, well, of course they know about this. You know, like, and how can I call? I've got no reception and what can I do about this? And then we got to the house and we thought, yep, our house is here, how wonderful. But for how long? So we came in and grabbed a lot more stuff, like a tent and pillows and blankets and cash, coins, everything we could find, and then headed to the bigger evacuation centre because we thought we didn't really pack enough food, so we need to eat. (laughs) For Will and for the people of Malur Bay, it had been a traumatic day full of adrenaline and uncertainty with people making snap decisions on the run in heightened emotional states. But can we predict how we're going to react in these situations? I looked at the question of what predicts evacuation, and they are perception of risk, the receipt of official warnings, and the perception of the effectiveness of your protective action, so the effectiveness of leaving or of remaining in terms of your personal safety and protection of property. This is what bushfire researcher Dr Ken Strawn thought his PhD was going to investigate. And I mean, it did. But in the process, an even more interesting finding emerged. I wasn't expecting it. It sort of popped out and I thought, oh, this is interesting. The messaging around bushfire safety tends to focus on a dichotomy. Leave or stay. That is, you should leave early. Or if you decide to stay and defend, you should be prepared. But as we've seen with Will Hook's experience in Malua Bay, human behaviour is rarely so neat and tidy. Around 30 to 50% of people wait and see, and that's definitely a no-no. But people do that because they live their daily lives and they're just adapting to a, a situation that they're assessing all the time. Ken's research was based on hours and hours of interviews he conducted with hundreds of people who had experienced a bushfire threat firsthand. And he found that decision-making in an evacuation is way more complex than simply deciding to leave or stay. And in fact, there are seven different types of bushfire evacuee. In the end, people either leave or stay. But in terms of the behaviours that people display, there are seven types. The threat denier is someone who says, OK, there is no threat, I don't need to actually do anything. And their typical behaviour during a bushfire is it won't come, the wind will change or the vegetation around won't carry a fire, etc. So they're the people who deny that there's a problem. Responsibility deniers are the people who say, yes, there's a threat, but I expect to be looked after here. The emergency services, the fire brigade will come and put out the fire, and if they don't, then they'll evacuate me. There are people who are dependent evacuators who also recognise the threat, but say, well, I just can't do this, I have to be looked after here. Considered evacuators are people who have, again, identified the risk, have planned and prepared, Okay, we're leaving, and basically as soon as we know that there is a threat, we'll be going. Worried waverers, as I uh, called them, (laughs) took a bit of a cut, are people who, again, recognise the threat and plan, train, do a lot but typically have not had experience with bushfire, 
who want to be able to stay and defend their house but don't have the experience and waver between staying and going. Community-guided are people who really work with their local neighbourhood, listen to the media, monitor the situation, monitor the environmental setting. But community-guided especially talk amongst themselves. You know, there are times when people have told me that they go out onto the road and they're the neighbours are wandering around and they talk to each other and wander back and it's that sort of process of consultation within a group of people and making a decision as a group and often acting as a group. Um, who else have we got here? Experienced independents are the people who typically remain and have prepared themselves to remain. They have firefighting equipment. They typically have experience in, in bushfire, either as ex-brigade members or some sort of experience. And they stay to protect their assets and are very committed to remaining. Ken argues that a better understanding of the seven different types of evacuee could lead to more effective emergency messaging that's tailor-made to your particular evacuation type. The emergency services still push hard on the you should leave, leave early, it's safer to leave early, which is absolutely true. But the archetypes work suggests that the emergency services can better target and communicate with people at that stage, at the stage of influencing their preparation and planning by identifying their particular interests, their beliefs, their likely responses, and really recognising that, saying, we know that this is how you feel, these are your motivators, this is perhaps what you can do to better prepare. So it's really saying, we understand you. So how do you identify the people? Because, I mean, I guess that's the trick. Like, how do you know ahead of time if someone's going to be a threat denier or a worried waverer? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> the CFA in, in Victoria has actually been doing work for a couple of years now since we identified the archetypes. In their post-season surveys, they've talked to over 2,000 people in Victoria and identified their archetypes. So they're looking at their programs and how people respond to their programs using that data. I've recently finished a large project under the Safer Together program, which recommended that we actually develop an online tool to allow practitioners or householders themselves to establish their archetype. So that's work to be done but, yeah, hopefully it'll be done. On their way to the main evacuation centre in Batemans Bay, Will and his flatmate got mobile reception for the first time since the crisis kicked off earlier that morning. So we stopped and started making a lot of phone calls and I had 68 messages. And so I thought I'd call my mum straight away. And <laughs> it was bad because it cut out as soon as it called and all I got through was mum saying, are you OK? thank God, and me saying, Mum, and it cut out. And then that's all I got. So my poor mum was just thinking it's some kind of panic final phone call. Don't worry, Will was able to call her back soon after and gave a brief update before continuing on to the main evacuation centre. 
Once they arrived, they found it well-equipped and not too crowded. They had the Red Cross there, disaster welfare, and it was a really safe spot. And so we had some food and there were some beautiful moments there because I was sitting next to someone and they said, have you been to the briefing? I said, oh, no, no, but I heard this, blah, blah. And I said, oh, where do you live? And then they said, we're on um, Lilypilly. I said, oh, same. And then they said their address. I said, you're actually three houses up from me. They were both school teachers and they come from Sydney as well. So we kind of shared some wonderful stories. It's quite funny. You can know your immediate neighbours, but after this, we started knowing the whole street. So that was quite lovely. So Will and his flatmate bunkered down for the night. I decided to stay in my car that night. My flatmate went in his tent. I think it was about 10 o'clock at night, I was brushing my teeth, and I had this moment, I thought, shit, is this my New Year's Eve? Like, I haven't even had a drink today. And then I just passed out at 10 o'clock, because I guess I was so exhausted. And then it's there I was in my car, New Year's Eve, laughing, going, I can't believe this, this is just ridiculous. You know, it, it does come down to talking about climate, you know, and I think you, when we had smoke here for three weeks and we still drove past our fire ravaged town every day you start to think is this the future I'm thinking that's going to be every summer now is this what it's going to be like and I think you know you're kind of mad to think that when you think how can anyone not think this is to do with the warming of the climate this is so severe this is so catastrophic the way this fire moved through this town so that's what I think I've taken from it you think this isn't a one-off thing that's going to happen you know Although there's been some parts that have been burnt and people feel safe, there's a lot that hasn't been burnt and, you know, it could happen all over again. Some of All Parts is produced by me, Joel Werner. Sound design is by me and Bryce Halliday, and Jonathan Webb is science editor. Thanks to Natasha Mitchell for her script advice. Go and subscribe to Science Fiction Now. There's a whole heap of fascinating stories taken from the nexus of science and culture. Thanks to Will Hook for sharing his incredible story with such good humour. Will, I'm so glad that you got out. Thanks also to Inspector Ben Shepherd from the New South Wales RFS and Dr Ken Strong. The audio playing in the beach scene in this episode was ripped from video footage of the New Year's Eve evacuation at Malua Bay. Thanks to News Corp photographer Alex Koppel for sharing his footage. Everyone go check out his Instagram. He's at Alex Koppel. And there's a link to that on our website, which is abc.net.au slash soap. And there'll be a new season of soap later in the year. There's going to be potatoes and undersea cables and poker controversies and football. And as always, I promise it will be worth the wait, although there will be a very short wait. But for now, that's it.